Mark 15:33-39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, and with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was a son of God. Uh, you know, what we're doing now is we're going through the final days of uh, the life of Jesus as it climaxes and leads to the cross. And today we're there. Uh, today what we are going to look at and what we're going to read about is uh, perhaps the most climactic moment uh, in the history of the world. And definitely, if you are a Christian, uh, the most important story for us to remember and to reflect upon. So uh, there, there is a note of somberness, I think, that comes with this passage, but there's also a note of joy, and I hope we'll hit both today. But uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you that you have given us Christ, and we thank you uh, for the very passage that we just read. And we pray that you would make this passage come to life to us, to our hearts, that uh, if some of us are struggling with a a lack of faith and have strayed away, that you would uh, bring us back through this story, through this gospel, through what Christ has done, through his love. Uh, For others of us, if uh, this is something that uh, we don't uh, really know or understand the meaning of, we do pray, God, that you would help us to see uh, the significance of it and the power of it. And uh, God, if we are a people who uh, think we know it all and we take for granted this story, uh, teach us anew again and help us to see the power of the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, a few weeks ago, someone recommended that uh, I read a book called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Paul Kalanithi. And I know at least a few of you have read it, because I've talked to a couple of you who've read it, but this book, it's basically a memoir of a man who uh, is dying from lung cancer, and he's writing uh, as he's dying from lung cancer. And at the time that he wrote this book, he was married, uh, and after he was diagnosed, they actually had a daughter, so he has a an infant baby, and he was a neurosurgeon by vocation, and definitely, even though he was a doctor and a neurosurgeon, he had a great gift of language, I think, a great gift of writing, uh, because he wrote such a wonderful and a beautiful book. And, you know, it's interesting, the fact that he was a doctor, uh, in one sense, it meant this, that he was a man who encountered death all the time. He works in a hospital. Uh, perhaps more than ministers, doctors are probably the ones who encounter death the most. But when he became the dying patient, you know, death, of course, has a whole new meaning. It has a whole new perspective when you're on the other side of things. And what I really loved about this book uh, was the beauty of it, because it really gives you a unique perspective on life and what makes life so beautiful. But it's also a very sobering book, because... uh, you know, he's, he's really able to make you 
experience and feel the pain and the intrusiveness of death upon a life. And I'm sure that those of you who have read it probably had a strong emotional response to this book, uh, maybe even shed some tears because I'm sure you felt the power of this book, but also the tragedy uh, of the death of this man. And uh, about a year ago, he passed away. So uh, the book was published in January. Uh, he's been passed away for about a year now. And after his death, uh, his wife ended up writing the epilogue of the book, where she details the very final moments of his life. And she herself, I think, is also a very gifted writer, very good with words. And as she's recalling, as she's telling us a story of um, his final moments, uh, she writes this. She says, as the room darkened into night, a low wall lamp glowing warmly, Paul's breaths became faltering and irregular. His body continued to appear restful, his limbs relaxed. Just before nine o'clock, his lips apart and eyes closed, Paul inhaled and then released one last deep final breath. And I'm sure some of you cried when you read that. Did I cry? No. But the only reason was because my wife was in the same room and she was talking to a friend. She was laughing really loud, so it ruined the moment for me. Uh, but my eyes, I did feel the emotions of it, and my eyes did well up because uh, it's really sad. You know, you, you really start to grow a connection to this man through his writing. And uh, deep in your heart, you're really hoping that he makes it. Uh, you're really hoping that the cancer would go into remission. And you really want this man to live uh, a life that's filled with happiness, a life with his wife and his daughter. You're hoping that his wife doesn't have to become a widow and his daughter doesn't have to grow up. Uh, without her father. And there's a, a deep heaviness and sadness to it. And even though that's something that you hope for, the reality of life, the reality of this man's life, uh, kind of gives you a sober perspective on this life in general. That death really is a chaotic enemy. Uh, it is a painful interruption to life, to the life that we thought we were going to live sometimes. And it's hard. It's painful. Now, I haven't seen many people uh, who have passed away, uh, but I've seen a few uh, at funerals. And I've seen people after they've died. But, you know, I've never actually seen somebody die in the moment of death. And I imagine that to be just a very surreal experience, that in one moment you have this person that you know and love and care about so deeply, and they're breathing, and maybe you just had a, a faint conversation with them. You can hold their hand, and you, you can feel the life as weak as it is. And then all of a sudden, in the next moment, there's no more breath. In the next moment, they're gone. In the next moment, any hope that you would be able to talk to them again and have a conversation with them again is gone. I wonder... Uh, I wonder what that moment feels like and how surreal it must be and how painful it must be. But you see, death is not something that we think about often. Uh, those moments are not things that we think about often. And I, heard, I once heard somebody say that in, in our culture, in Western culture, we are a culture that probably is the most ill-equipped to deal with things like suffering and death. Uh, we are a culture that is in great denial of death. And 
You can kind of see it by how obsessed we are with youth, how obsessed we are with living longer, how obsessed we are with looking younger. But when we're forced, I think, to confront the reality of death, I think very quickly we realize it's an ugly reality. Uh, it's a powerful, painful reality. And it really has a power to strip a person of their dignity. I was reading this book and I, of course, put myself in this man's shoes. And I said, what if I was like him? He was only in his late 30s. What if I was like him, promising a career, a new family? What if I was like him? What if I was sick? And what if I was rapidly losing weight? And what if I was just throwing up all the time? And what if I was unable to walk on my own and writhing in pain all the time? And I thought to myself, you know, if I was like that, I wouldn't want anybody to see me. And the reason I wouldn't want anybody to see me like that is because I, I want to project strength. I want to project power. But death takes those things away from you. It steals it from you. And it tells you you are weak. It tells you you are frail. And it puts you in a position where you cannot do anything on your own. And it really humbles you like nothing else in the world. I think that's what people, and that's what I find so inspiring about this man's life, is he actually seemed to face death with a lot of power and a lot of strength and a lot of dignity. He didn't avoid death, and he didn't want to avoid suffering, and he didn't live his life like that. But he said, I'm going to face it head on. I want to face it with courage. I want to face it with strength. And I want to face it with love. And after you read about this man, and after you read about the epilogue of how this man died, uh, you just want to conclude and you want to say something like this, man, truly, this man was a, a good man. This man was a great man. There's a heaviness to death. and There's an even greater heaviness to Jesus' death for the many reasons that there's a heaviness of any kind of death. And if we suspend what we know about the significance of Jesus' death for a moment, and we just kind of look at it from the perspective of, let's say you're somebody who knows Jesus, you can see somebody thinking thoughts like this. Man, Jesus, this man was a good man. And he's dying at such a young age. Uh, this man was such a gifted teacher, and he impacted and influenced so many people. And he could have probably done so much good. And death interrupted his life, and he ends up dying upon a cross. Not only that, the kind of death that he dies is one where he's stripped of his dignity, and he dies in a very public way, nailed to a cross. But even then, and even if we think about that, it doesn't get close to the true tra tragedy of Jesus' death. Because you see, Jesus' death is the most unique death in all of history. Jesus' death is not like any other death. There is an even greater sense of heaviness, an even greater sense of intensity in Jesus' death because of what he endured as he hung upon the cross. And, you know, as dark as the hospital room may have been when Paul Kalanithi died, it doesn't compare to the darkness that covered the whole earth 
when Jesus hung upon a cross. And as restful as this man's death was, as he gave his final breath, when Jesus gave his final breath before that, he gave a deep cry of agony and pain. And after reading this book, even though I wanted to conclude, man, this man was such a great man, Jesus' death brought a Roman centurion of all people to not conclude simply that this was a great man, but to make a very profound confession that truly this was the Son of God. I want to bring you the heaviness of Paul Kalanithi's death, uh, not to say that it was like Jesus, but to feel the impact of that death and to multiply it by infinity as we look at this passage, as we look at Jesus' death. Because Jesus' death is a heavy thing. And it's something that I think we need to reflect upon. And it was one of the most unique deaths in human history. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to look at the things that made Jesus' death so unique by looking at the darkness, by looking at his agony, and by looking at the confession of this Roman centurion. Now, verse 33, it tells us this, that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And basically what that means is it was 12 o'clock, it was noon, and darkness came until about 3 p.m. And if you could just kind of visualize what that would be like, and this is during a time where there's no electricity, there are no lights, you're dependent upon the sun for light, and all of a sudden the time where it's supposed to be the brightest time of the day, all of a sudden it gets dark and darkness covers the land. And you get that feeling, you kind of get that ominous feeling of, whoa, right, whoa. See, in the Bible, darkness, it it means something. It usually conveys something. And uh, what it means is this. It usually conveys judgment or it conveys chaos. You know, for example, if you look in Genesis 1, all the way in the beginning of the Bible, it says darkness was over the face of the deep. And what that imagery is meant to tell us and communicate to us that before God created the world, there was darkness, there was chaos. And the first thing that God does is he says, let there be light. Because what God is doing is he is creating order out of chaos. Then you move on in the Bible and you get to the book of Exodus and you uh, hear that very well-known story about uh, Moses and the Israelites being free from the bondage of Egypt. And what God does and he sends ten plagues and one of the plagues that he sends, the ninth plague to be specific, He sends darkness, and he tells Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. This, you see, it's it's an act of judgment. And within the context of Genesis, it's probably a reversal of creation, going back to chaos. It's a picture of being undone. Get to the Psalms. You have Psalm 88, one of the darkest Psalms in all of that book. And you have this man named Haman, and he offers a prayer of deep loneliness and depression. And in order to express what he's feeling and what he's experiencing, the psalm ends with this line, Darkness is my only friend. Finally, you get to the prophets, and they would use imagery of darkness all the time to communicate God's judgment. And so you have in the prophet Amos, chapter 8, verse 9, God would say this, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And you can see there's probably a direct connection between this verse and what's going on with Jesus here. But it's meant to communicate judgment. 
And so when we read here that darkness is covering the whole land, what is it meant to communicate to us? It's not meant to communicate to us that there's a solar eclipse that took place, but it's meant to communicate to us something deeper. It's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of chaos. It's a sign of coming undone. And when Jesus here is hanging on the cross at the sixth hour and darkness is covering the whole land, it's telling us this, that Jesus' death was more than simply the physical pain of crucifixion. And you know, of course, death by crucifixion is an incredibly painful thing, so I read, so I hear. And uh, sometimes I'll hear people say this, man, why, why is God such a masochist that he would inflict this kind of punishment and violent death upon uh, Jesus? And uh, I would usually respond by saying this, well, I think Hollywood is probably more fixated upon the physical violence of the cross based on their depictions of Jesus and his death. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't focus on that at all. And if you remember last week's passage, you might have even overlooked it and not noticed that it actually talked about Jesus being crucified, but Mark says it in such a matter-of-fact way, and he doesn't focus on any of the gory details. He simply says this, it was the third hour, and they crucified him. That's it. None of the physical violence, none of the gory details of the cross, because that is not the extent of Jesus' suffering. Darkness that covered the land tells us this, that Jesus' suffering was a lot more than just the physical pain. Jesus' suffering was that of somebody becoming undone. His suffering was one in which he was the recipient of God's judgment and God's wrath. He was the one who was utterly abandoned to the point where darkness was his only friend. And this leads to our second point and explains to us why Jesus died in so much agony here. Because up until this point, uh, we kind of have this picture of Jesus where he's pretty calm, he's pretty resolved during his trial. You know, he doesn't say much. Uh, when he was beaten, flogged, and mocked, Mark doesn't give us any notable reaction from Jesus. But only until the moment of his death do you see Jesus break. And he yells this loud cry, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think what's interesting about these words is these are not words of great strength and victory. And if you think about it, if you were to make up a story about the hero of your faith, you'd probably give him better words than, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would probably give him something like what William Wallace said in Bravehearts, in his final words, and he yelled out, freedom! Like, man, he died uh, so well. But Jesus here, he, he yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is so broken and undone. Why? It's because he is experiencing something that nobody else in history would ever experience. He would suffer something that nobody else in history would ever suffer. He is experiencing the full wrath, the full anger, and the full judgment of God for our sin upon himself. You know, some people would always, I always get this question, uh, but some people always ask, you know, why does God in the Old Testament seem like he's so angry? 
But then God in the New Testament seems like uh, he's not as angry. Right? Well, how do you account for the difference? And uh, I guess what I would say is this. Uh, it's not two separate gods, but uh, I actually think God is the most angry in the New Testament. And I think in the Old Testament, God's anger is somewhat restrained. And the reason I say I think God is the angriest in the New Testament is because of this passage. It's because of what Jesus experienced. Because here at this moment, when Jesus is dying upon the cross, the full wrath of God is poured out upon his Son. Not for, our, not for his sin, but for our sin. You know, when Jesus, he addresses God, usually says, my, you know, Father, right? When he prays, he says, Father. But here on the cross, he says, my God, not my Father, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why? It's showing us that a relationship was broken. See, Jesus is actually recalling from Psalm 22 here. And the cry of Psalm 22 is a cry that says, God, why are you so far from saving me? I'm crying out to you and I find no rest. I think when Jesus is crying out here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think one of the things that he's experiencing is this relational distance between him and the Father, and one in which he has never experienced up until this point. And in many ways, I think the experience of this relational distance is more painful because of the level of intimacy that you have in that relationship. There's no real analogy for us to get to understand uh, the, the, the Trinity, There's no analogy to help us understand the level of intimacy within uh, the Godhead, within the Father and the Son. But I think the best we can do is look at it from the perspective of human relationships and to know that we have to really multiply it infinitely. And you think about it, what what are the moments where you feel the greatest feeling of distance in a human relationship? And I think it's when you, you feel it in the context of somebody that you've been the most intimate with. You see, someone, some stranger on the street, I don't feel relationally distant from them because I don't know them. And I don't have a personal relationship with them. But you see, a husband and a wife, a relationship where they're so intimate, I think in the context of that relationship, you probably feel the most, you can potentially feel the most relational distance in that relationship, because of the level of intimacy you share. Imagine this. Imagine you're really close to somebody. You've shared most intimate moments with somebody. And that person, that relationship, it goes sour, eventually leading to that relationship being dissolved and ending up in divorce. And imagine the coldness and the distance that you can feel from the spouse at that moment, and think about how much more painful that is than just being ignored by somebody you don't really know. You know, you think about the level of intimacy between the father and the son, and again, there's no way to adequately understand it, but it's going to be far more intimate between, than between a relationship between husband and wife, because father and son were one in eternity. But here's what happened. Jesus humbled himself. He entered into human history. And now, for the first time, he experiences what it's like 
to have that relationship severed. I think that is the agony and the pain, greater than any physical pain. I think that's the agony of the cross. That's the pain I think that Jesus is experiencing here. Why does he do it? What is, uh, what is the result of Jesus' agony and pain? What is the result of his death? And I think Mark tells us two things. The first thing we see is a torn curtain. And the second thing we see is a confession. I think both are related. You know, after Jesus dies, Mark tells us this, that the temple curtain was torn in two. And what he's talking about there is uh, in the, the Jewish temple, you have this place called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And basically there was a curtain that divided the Most Holy Place from the rest of the temple. And this place was a very sacred place because it was supposed to house the very glory of God, the very presence of God. And it was so, uh, so holy that not anybody could access it, but only the high priest could access it once a year on the Day of Atonement. And what Mark is saying here when he talks about this curtain being torn in two is this. Now God's presence, now God's glory, now it is accessible to all people. Jesus' death tore that division down. And now we have full access to a holy God. Now God and humanity can be reconciled. Now we can know God personally and intimately. And how does Mark show this? You know, if you look in our passage, there's a Greek word uh, translated as torn. And uh, when he talks about the curtain being torn, and it's, it's kind of a violent word. Uh, and it's a word that's also used in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is baptized. And in Mark chapter 1, it says this, that the heavens were torn open at Jesus' baptism. And after the heavens were torn open, Jesus heard a voice from God. And this voice said this, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And at that moment, only Jesus knew. Only that revelation was revealed to Jesus himself, that he was the Son of God. Now we get to the end of Mark, and Jesus dies, and this curtain is torn open. And now we have this Roman centurion. And now he knows and he sees, truly, this man was the Son of God. And I think that's basically Mark's way of showing us what happens when the temple curtain is torn in two. It means that God, his truth, his presence, his glory is accessible to all people. It's not simply for the Jew, but now it's also for the non-Jew. It's not only for the high priest to have access once a year, but now it's even through this centurion. Now this curtain is torn through the death of Christ and now everybody can have access to God. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be priest. You don't even have to be perfectly righteous to have access to God because in Christ, he gives you his righteousness. All we really need is faith. Faith to believe in him. Faith to trust in him. Faith to know that we are forgiven by him, 
And that's what the gospel is. That's what Christianity is all about. Now, uh, I imagine this is not new for many people. This is a common story. If you're somebody who grew up in the church, this is probably something that you already knew. But I wonder how many of us really, uh, really know it and really appropriate it. Uh, I was listening to this interview um, with a comedian, and he's not a, he's not a famous comedian. I, I don't even remember his name. Uh, but he was kind of just talking about his life, and he was talking about his upbringing. And he grew up in a very devout Catholic home, and he was just kind of talking about his spiritual journey. And he, you know, I thought there was a few things he said that were pretty interesting. And he said, you know, growing up in this Catholic home, uh, I grew up with a, just a very strong sense of guilt in my life. And uh, he was saying, you know, I had this impression that God was someone who was kind of always there and always watching me. And every bad thing that I did, that he was there to see that. And he was constantly judging me for all the bad things that I did. And so what he would say is, you know, I, I always lived out of a, of a sense of, of fear. Fear that God was going to send me to hell. And because of that, I just felt very repressed and trapped and so his conclusion, uh, he has this really interesting line where he says, you know, I thought religion was supposed to be like a puppy. Uh, it's supposed to make your life better, not trap you and make you feel like you're a prisoner to it. And I thought that was just such a good description of, I think, how the average modern person probably understands and views religion. Uh, religion is something that is supposed to be oppressive. It's something that's supposed to just make you feel guilty, and it takes out all of the joy in your life. But if that's how you understand Christianity then, if you don't understand what's going on here, uh, then you don't really understand the essence of the message of the gospel because Jesus, he didn't come to threaten us with hell in order to make us follow all of his rules. He came to experience it. He came to experience hell so that we would be saved from it. You know, the other thing I thought that was interesting about this comedian is he, uh, he went from being Catholic to becoming this very spiritual, uh, new agey kind of person. Uh, and he, I think, carries around, I'm not familiar with new age spirituality, but I guess sometimes there's crystals involved. And he, he would carry around certain crystals, and these crystals, I think, were supposed to make him feel empowered and make him feel connected to something that is beyond himself. And I thought that was interesting. You know, the, the deepest desire of his heart is to experience the transcendence. Uh, the deep desire of his heart is to connect with something that is greater than him, that is outside of him. And the irony is, that's exactly what this passage is telling us in the tearing of this curtain. You see, the way we connect with God, the way we connect with the transcendent, it's not ultimately based on what we do. And uh, I think maybe sometimes, some of us, maybe we feel like that. Uh, sometimes we think, ultimately, it's based upon what we do. It's based upon our moral performance. It's based upon our own achievements. But it's not. It's not based on any of those things. It's not based upon how good of a person you think you are compared to everybody else. 
And certainly it's not based on these crystals that you might think have a certain power. Ultimately, the only way we connect to God, the only way we connect to the transcendent is this. Jesus died. Jesus died on a cross. And because he died on a cross, the temple curtain was torn in two. Because this temple curtain was torn in two, God connects to us. God reaches out to us. And because God connects to us first, that is the only way we can be connected to him. You see, friends, that's what we call grace. Grace. You know, without grace, without a good, robust understanding of grace, your relationship with God is going to ultimately be distorted. Uh, you're, you're probably going to feel like that comedian who could only relate to God out of fear, whose only motivation to please God was driven by guilt. But you see, the message of the gospel, it's a message of grace. It's a message that says God loved us first. It's a message that says God gave his son to us freely out of his grace. I think if that's something we understand, a basic truth, something that we don't always firmly grasp, I think it completely changes how we relate to God. You know, I just read this sermon by a, an 18th century minister, Scottish minister named Thomas Chalmers. And uh, he says that the free grace of the gospel is actually the secret to the Christian life. Uh, that's, that's actually how... We grow in holiness. That's actually how we grow in righteousness. That's actually how we grow in joy. That's how we grow in peace. If you live by a life that says, do this and you shall live philosophy, then you're just controlled by a spirit of fear. And you end up doing some legal bargaining with God. And what that ends up doing is destroying any confidence that you have in God and in your relationship with God. And while we're, we think we're pursuing what we think this is what God wants, our hearts are ultimately going to do it out of selfishness and self-preservation rather than to seek God's glory. And so you see, why, uh, why do we do what we do? And I don't know if you have those existential moments of crisis where you kind of question meaning in your life and you say, why am I killing myself over this job? Why do I care so much about money? Why am I trying to, to make so much of it? Uh, why, why am I seeking this kind of relationship? Why, why am I doing what I do? And if you are a member of the church and you're actively serving, maybe sometimes you ask this, why am I serving the church so hard? Why am I giving up so many things? I could be doing so many other things. You know what? The answer has to be this. Not to please God. Not to earn favor with God. But because I'm thankful. Because I'm thankful. You see, the, the application is simple. And uh, 
I want to keep it simple. And the application is not, everybody, you need to do more. My application is this. Be thankful. Look to the cross. Be thankful for it. See his grace and receive it. And be thankful for it. Remember Jesus' death and his agony in order to give you life. And be thankful for it. Know that your worth or your righteousness or your acceptance is not based on who you are, what you've done, what you've achieved. But it's simply based on what Jesus achieved for you. So receive it and be thankful for it. You see, because I think the way to live a healthy life, especially as a believer, is to live it out of deep gratitude. Not to live it out of guilt, not to live it out of envy, not to live it out of competition with other people, but to live it out of the heart of gratitude. You know, I, I know oftentimes we give reasons that we should be thankful, and oftentimes we say things like, you know, I'm thankful that I have a job, I'm thankful I have my health, I'm thankful I have my family, and to be sure, those are definitely things that we ought to be thankful for. But I'm, what I'm saying is this. Before all that, be thankful for what Christ has done for you on the cross. Because we may lose all the things that we treasure here on earth. Uh, in fact, we will lose everything because death will strip it away. But even when we're at our lowest, even when things are not going well, even when we're somebody like Paul Kalanithi, stuck in a hospital bed, losing our lives, we can still be thankful because it doesn't change what Jesus did on the cross. We don't have to be victims. We don't have to wallow in self-pity. But no matter what, we can be thankful because this is a gift that will never be taken away. This is a gift that will never be beaten. There is no greater thing that we can receive than the very thing we receive in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be thankful. We can be thankful and have gratitude in our hearts. Then I think we'll really begin to grow. Then I think our relationship with God won't be dysfunctional. Then I think we'll have so much joy and peace in our hearts. The very thing that everybody is longing for. Praise God. Praise God for the cross. Let's bow our heads in prayer, and the worship team will lead us.